Hey everyone, Kimberly here. Happy New Year! We are still on a bit of a holiday break, but we'll be back next week with all new episodes of Make Me Smart. Until then, we're revisiting another one of our favorite episodes from the last 12 months. We hope you enjoy it, and here's the show. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams, and welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. It's Tuesday. We're doing one topic today, as we always do on Tuesdays, and we're talking labor organizing, labor unions, organized labor in this country. What is um, happening? Because actually, there's a lot happening. President Biden uh, was out with iron workers in Cleveland last week. Um, union workers, as you know, are a huge political force in this country. And oh, by the way, there's an election coming up. And so um, we're going to talk about about the strength um, uh, and the and the impact of organized labor in this economy right now. Because it's like we seem to be hearing about a new union drive almost every week. Starbucks locations, REI, Trader Joe's. Apple, in some cases, the list goes on and on. Union organizing, though, looks different today than it did decades ago. And so we're going to talk about the implications that has for workers in this economy. Sarah Jaffe is here to make us smart. She's a labor journalist, also the co-host of the podcast Belabored. And also she writes books. Uh, A couple of them are called uh, Work Won't Love You Back, which is parenthetically editorial (laughs) here. True. Uh, And also, uh, (laughs) I mean, my boss is listening to mine. Uh, And also Necessary Trouble is another one. Sarah, um, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, you know, the pre- part of the premise for, for this podcast was that we are, it seems, in a slightly different time for labor organizing in this country. It seems to be um, not the big um, union drives that we've seen, but sort of smaller shop by shop. We've seen the Starbucks. We've seen the Amazon warehouses. We've seen the Apples. Um, and they're kind of going one by one. Is that is that a fair sort of um, uh, impression? Yeah. So... The thing about that is that it's been true of American labor law for quite a long time that workers are basically required to win union recognition shop by shop um, or bargaining unit by bargaining unit, as the technical term would go. The difference now is, of course, that the bargaining units are a lot smaller because we're not talking massive factories that have 50,000 people in them where winning a union at, at you know Ford's River Rouge factory or a U.S. Yeah. steel plant you know, was organizing thousands or tens of thousands of workers, we're talking about, you know, Starbucks by Starbucks, where there's 15, 20, 25, 30 workers at a time, or even the Amazon warehouse, right? The Amazon labor union on Staten Island um, has a bargaining unit of 5,000 or so. And that's that's a pretty big one compared to, you know, a lot of the things that are happening now where a lot of the new organizing is, as you're saying, it's coming in much smaller workplaces. It's coming in nonprofits. Um, the one that I was just watching today was uh, the Guttmacher Institute, which is, of course, a, a reproductive rights and research nonprofit just organized. And uh, the employees won their union with 97 percent support today. But that is still like a, a pretty small organization compared to a big old factory. I suppose now would be the appropriate time to disclose that we here at Marketplace are also uh, recently organized and currently negotiating our first contract. But I wonder, is there a difference in how hard it is negotiating with a smaller group compared to these tens of thousands of workers in a, in a factory back in the day? Yeah, I think, I mean, on, on one hand, right, it could be easier because you've got a smaller group of people to be making the demands. But then um, you have this challenge of power, right? Starbucks is 
closing stores. They just announced today, I think, that they're closing a couple of stores in Seattle, including a few of the ones that had or a couple of the ones that had unionized. So, you know, it's it's hard when you're looking at a massive corporation, but you're organizing it piece by piece in the it's not it wasn't as easy, although they did do it right to close those factories down and move them. Although, you know, the pattern of deindustrialization we've seen, the reason that we don't have those massive factories anymore is not that massive factories don't exist. They just now exist in China and Bangladesh because they did close down that unionized factory outside of Detroit. Right. Um, so we can see the way that that power works is not fundamentally different. It's just easier for Starbucks to close one or two stores when they've got 7,000. Do you think, to the point of organized labor as a political force, do you think um, this smaller unit by smaller unit thing, right, the 15-person Starbucks store instead of the, you know, giant River Rouge thing, do you think that um, uh, attenuates the political oomph that organized labor can bring? Um, I think... What has attenuated the political oomph that organized labor can bring is that we're just now at 10% union density across the country, and it's something like 6% in the private sector. Um, And the challenge is getting that back up with getting from small unit to, you know, trying to get to a million new workers, which is the target that AFL-CIO head Liz Schuler said at their recent conference, trying to get to that. 25 people at a time is a real challenge. The interesting thing about the Starbucks organizing, of course, is that it's been spreading really quickly. But even still, right, that's a real, um, it's a real shift. And it's interesting, of course, that I think um, President Biden spends a lot of time, you mentioned him, you know, meeting with the iron workers, um, spends a lot of time still courting like sort of old school organized labor, right? Iron workers, steel workers, auto workers, this is sort of the the mid-century vision of who a union worker was. It's probably a man. He's probably white and wearing a hard hat, as opposed to, you know, young, um, multiracial, multiethnic, multi-gendered um, kids who work at Starbucks. I right. shouldn't say kids. That, that sounds demeaning. But, like, you know, when you're looking at people who young are 19, people. 20, 21 years old, yeah. right, um, that's not who somebody really imagines as, like, the political constituency of organized labor. And yet these days it increasingly is, right? When you look at somebody like Chris Smalls, who's the president of the Amazon Labor Union, yeah. um, he's he's a man. That's what he has in common with, with some of these um, assumptions, although a lot of the other people who helped organize that place were not men. But, you know, this is this is a different organized labor and it's going to have different political demands. Which is so fascinating because, you know, in the history of organized labor, these exact groups that you're talking about leading the charge here were traditionally blocked from joining units back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about the history of American labor law, right, like in the Wagner Act, which is the, the National Labor Relations Act, it says that the job is of the U.S. government is to promote workers getting into unions. Of course, that has pretty much been the opposite of what every law passed since then has done to uh, in terms of workers organizing. But, you know, the, the Wagner Act was a piece of legislation at the same time as the New Deal. And we know, right, that the New Deal at this point left out certain kinds of workers from the Wagner Act, from the Fair Labor Standards Act because of who they were, because of the compromises that had to be made with certain Southern politicians to get these acts passed, they left out domestic workers, they left out farm workers, because those were the places where most of the workers were Black. 
And the other organ, um, other sectors of the economy have gradually been able to move into the protections of labor law when we think about um, hospital workers, say, who only got collective bargaining rights fairly recently. Um, when we think about service workers um, who were exempt from minimum wage and still in a lot of cases, right, have a tipped minimum wage. It's been an, an uneven process of including more workers and then lately of shutting more of them back out again, right? So we've seen these Supreme Court decisions that then have ruled that certain kinds of workers aren't really workers or that the labor law shouldn't really apply to them in the same way because they're in the public sector. So it's an it's an ongoing struggle to get both the law and the unions and the people who make you know strategic organizing decisions to think about young people working in a Starbucks as as important as people who are working in a Ford factory. What do you think accounts for um, the rise, certainly the rise in consciousness, consciousness uh, about organized labor, but but also perhaps just the rise in, in general background activity in, in, in this area? Yeah, I mean, so um, you mentioned my books in the beginning, and I was working on my first book, um, necessary trouble, I was talking about sort of social movements in the U.S. after the financial crisis and the rise of class consciousness in Mm -hmm. this country. And that was, you know, I was talking about Occupy, obviously, and Black Lives Matter, but I was also talking about the big protests in 2011 when, um, speaking of stripping people of, of, you know, labor protections, Wisconsin stripped away collective bargaining rights from public sector workers. Um, I wrote about the Chicago teacher strike in 2012. And so we've been seeing this building kind of, you know, frankly, as material conditions get worse for a lot of people, um, as rights have been taken away, but also as it's harder to find a job, it's harder to find a good job, as some of those good jobs themselves become less good jobs when we think about like universities, which are now taught 70-something percent by adjuncts or otherwise um, contingent faculty, right? Good jobs are becoming harder and harder to come by and working people increasingly desperate. And then now we have this other moment post-pandemic, where the labor market's actually tightened up a little bit. But it does mean that some workers have been able to make more demands. And so when we saw like the wave of strikes last year, right, at Nabisco, at Frito-Lay, at John Deere, the workers knew these were people who had been told they were essential workers and kept working throughout the pandemic. And they knew that their companies were profitable. And so they just weren't going to take the argument anymore that they couldn't get a raise or that they couldn't get more reasonable working hours because the company couldn't afford to hire more people. They just knew better. And so I think we're seeing the combination of, of conditions getting like actually mm-hmm. worse mm-hmm. with a rising confidence and, frankly, anger on behalf of working people. Hmm. If this keeps up, say, you know, the next five years or so, how do you think the American workplace is going to be different for American workers? If we continue to see this sort of rising wave of small-scale unionization? Yeah, I think there's a real question, right, about what comes next, about what the next... um, big leap forward can be, right? Because it's it's not going to be 
enough to just think 20 people, 20 people by 20 people by 20 people, even if that is on some level the way that the law would have you do it. It is going to require something bigger than that. And what happened, you know, in the 1930s as as this labor law is being written, right, is that you also had a group of organizers who were thinking about how to organize these big factories that, you know, before the CIO, the, the Congress of Industrial Organizations is what it stood for, stands for, um, the AFL basically organized like, you know, so-called skilled labor in smaller shops, maybe, and didn't think that you could organize industrial workers. And so we need to see something on the scale of that, really, to get back to a place where workers have um, a real experience of, of power shifting in the workplace. But you know, even those 20 person shops, that'll make a big difference in the lives of the people who work in those places. And, you know, at companies like Starbucks, where this just the wave keeps going, and they, they can close two stores, they can close five stores, they can close maybe 100 stores. But they can't close all the stores that have been unionizing at the rate that they're unionizing at. And so at some point, is the company going to decide, screw it, let's make a deal? Mm -hmm. Let's stop fighting them? Um, you know, we just saw Microsoft, I believe, right, make a statement that it would be neutral in union elections. Right, with the Activision Blizzard acquisition. Right, exactly. And so it's possible, right, that some companies are going to just kind of say, okay, okay, um, we can make some sort of a deal that will be less disruptive than potential strikes, potential... Um, loss of employees, potential loss of you know, reputation. Um, things like that are going to be really interesting. Um, another thing that just happened today, of course, is Wired Magazine, where the employees had voted to strike on Amazon Prime Day, which is obviously a big oh, wow. day for the tech sector. Um, and miraculously, they got a deal. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I that I say a lot to people is like, you have to watch strikes, obviously, because strikes are the demonstration of power. But you also have to watch almost strikes. You have to count strike votes, too, and see like, OK, this organization made a credible threat of striking that would have really disrupted this organization's um, business and profits. And so the company said, all right, all right, we'll make a deal. So these are these are interesting questions that are going to be um, certainly things that I'm going to be watching over the next few years. Hmm. <laughs> Plenty of fodder for the next book. No joke. <laughs> Good stuff. Sarah Jaffe, labor journalist, co-host of the podcast Be Labored, and author, as I mentioned, of several books, including Work Won't Love You Back and Necessary Trouble. Thank you so much. Sarah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Oh, boy. I, I, I learned a bunch in that, not least of which is, and I, sh I should have known this, that, that unions have to organize shop by shop, bargaining unit by bargaining unit. And it's just different now because the bargaining units are smaller. Totally interesting. I should have known that. Yeah, I, I'm really stuck on this idea of, like, who's leading the charge, that yeah. it's people of color and, and women. And, you know, in addition to what Sarah was laying out about, you know, the legal framework not including industries with those folks in it, I mean, back in the day, 
black people weren't even allowed mm-hmm. in some Not labor even, unions. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I heard, you know, my mom told me stories of uh, when she was a kid, her dad crossing picket lines, yeah. you know, during strikes because he couldn't even join the union if he wanted to, hmm. but he needed the work, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, wow. fascinating. Yeah. Wow. That's a good story, actually. Your grandfather. Yeah. they Apparently, um, people would drive by and shoot at their house. Wow. It was bad. Okay. Hmm. hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I just brought no, it real no, dark look, that's, real quick. It counts. It <laughs> it's American matters. history for yeah. you. Uh, well, if you have a interesting labor-related story or other things, uh, let us know what you think. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also send us a voice memo at makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost to splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. All right, let's do some news. Let's do some news. You go first. Yeah, because as you know, I was scrambling to get in the (laughs) studio today because I was desperately trying to catch the opening statements of the latest January 6th hearing, um, which, you know, everybody will probably heard all the news from it once once you hear this podcast. But I was really struck in the opening statements today that Liz Cheney, the co-chair of the commission, uh, laid out in very explicit detail that she could see that the arguments trying to, hmm, let me say that a different way. She talked about all the efforts to basically shift the blame off of Trump for what happened on January 6th. And that as these hearings continue on, the arguments that people are using to try to say it wasn't Trump's fault are changing. And there's like this game of hot potato Mm. happening, of shifting the blame. It's like, oh, you know, it was the crowd was out of control and Trump had no control over it. He didn't know what was going on. And now the argument is, oh, no, he got bad counsel from his lawyers and it's not his fault. And she was like... 
Donald Trump is a 76-year-old man and not an impressionable child. And he needs to take responsibility for his actions. And I just thought that was so striking and really reflective of what this committee is trying to do. They're like, no, you knew, everybody around you knew, you did it anyway, and this is your fault. Yeah. 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 That's my news. It's wild. It's wild. And, and I will confess, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I've got one eye on the hearings and the subtitles here in the studio because it's crazy <laughs> stuff. Not that I'm not paying full and devoted attention Whatever. to this podcast. I'm just, <laughs> come on, admit it. You could, you would if you could too. Come on. I do not have that level of multitasking uh, ability. Uh, I would not be able to fake attention if I if I was doing that. Right. So I'm not even going to try. Okay. All right. Well, then I'm definitely not doing it either. All right. Anyway, so I got okay. I got I got two and a half things. Um, okay. The first is not at all in our bailiwick, but holy cow, this is a wild story. So Mo Farah, who's <gasps> a British a four-time Olympic gold medalist in the 5,000 and 10,000 meters. Um, in the, I think the 2008 and 2012 Olympics. There's a documentary out about him on the BBC in which he says um, that he was trafficked into the United Kingdom, obviously illegally, when he was a kid. He was held in servitude. Nine. He was abused. And then finally, after having told a teacher at work about his true identity, was placed in a different family in better circumstance and obviously went on to um, amazing athletic achievement. But it's, it's a wild story. Wild just so unbelievable. Wild. Yeah. I was listening to that this morning and just yep. mouth hanging open yeah. because you know, you know that human trafficking and modern yeah. day slavery yeah. exists. But the fact that you know, you're hearing from somebody who experienced it, the woman who trafficked mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. It's just like out there wouldn't talk to the BBC obviously. You, you know, they talked to the his family back in Somaliland and and the person whose identity they forged, you know, to bring him into the country. It's, oh my gosh, what a story. Wild story. story. So that's that's just a thing that caught my eye this morning. Um, Also related to the United Kingdom, but generally about global aviation more specifically or more generally, if you are flying this summer, forget about it. And if you're going through London Heathrow, don't. They came out this morning and said, the London Heathrow uh, Airport authorities came out this morning and said, we're going to limit passengers for the summer season because we don't have enough staff to take care of the hundreds of thousands of people who come in in here every single day. They have asked airlines to voluntarily stop selling tickets because of staff shortages and a crush of people wanting to travel. So do not go through London. Just don't. That's all I'm saying. You know, as I've been booking travel for various things this summer, I'm giving myself such Mm -hmm. a buffer Mm -hmm. on either side of it because I'm sort of expecting that I'm my flight's going to get delayed or canceled and I'll have to make other arrangements. Did you see that photo of all of that luggage luggage. stuck at Heathrow? Literally a mountain of suitcases that have been, you know, misguided and mishandled and left to die and just crazy. Don't go to London. Don't go to London. One of my stronger memories of uh, my time in Cairo was Egypt Air lost my luggage once. And in order to get it back, I had to go back to the airport and they took me into this basement. And I was like actually worried because it was dark and it was scary. And I go into this cavernous room 
with ceilings maybe like 15 feet high with just row after row after rack after rack of luggage. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how many people's luggage is just lost forever down here? Everybody's. Everybody's (laughs) luggage. Everybody's. Yeah. Okay. And my last little item is just a public service announcement. After uh, all those pictures came out from the James Webb Space Telescope, the Amazeballs pictures, they're crazy. But um, I wondered out loud on Twitter if what we're seeing in these pictures, if we were like actually out there next to these nebulae and galaxies and stuff, you know, spacesuit and, you know, physics and gravity notwithstanding, is this what we would see? Is this what would hit the naked eye? And the short answer is no, it would not. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is infrared, a lot of the clouds are gaseous and opaque, and so, no. But just thank God for astronomical photography, because it looks much cooler. But that is not what we would actually see, and I was just curious about that this morning, and that's all. And and you got an answer. That's super I, cool. I got, I got I, many answers. I will put a shameless plug in here. Uh, tomorrow on the Tech Show, we have a conversation with a Nobel laureate, an oh, nice. astronomer, who explains a lot more clearly than I was really understanding what we're looking at in the picture and also uh, about that planet that Mm -hmm, they found mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that has like water in the atmosphere. And this concept of looking back in time through the picture, I was trying to explain that to my niece this morning and did a terrible job. And he gave a really clear example, which is that he used the example, I'll give it a little preview, of when you do a core sample in the Earth, mm-hmm. and at the bottom, you can see, you know, what little animals and critters and fossils were alive millions of years ago. In the middle, a little bit more recently, and close to the top, you know, stuff that was alive more, you know, right, right now. Right, right. We're basically looking at a core sample of the universe. Oh, that's pretty good description, seeing actually. all the cool. different time periods, which really helped me wrap my head around yeah, that concept. Yeah, that's very cool. Huh. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, there you go. We got to do a little science. We do a little politics. We do a little mm-hmm. economics. Everything. Let us now do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is nice Godfrey trip. from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay. Last week, a listener proposed that we create a Kai-Sai <laughs> index <laughs> as an indicator. As an indicator, oh wait, does it make you want to sigh? Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Anyway, they wanted this to be an indicator of the mood of the country. And one of you called in and left us this. Hey, K-squared. This is Amanda calling from Columbus, Ohio. (laughs) And I'm calling to commiserate with Kai about his Kai-Sai index. Yes. I didn't realize how much I sighed until my boyfriend called me out on it one day. And then I realized I sigh all the time. It's like breathing for me. Right. And then I got stressed because I was feeling yes. self-conscious about sighing. Yes. So then I was sighing more. I realized it is a family Amanda. trait. Everybody in my family sighs a lot. We have different levels of sigh exaggeration and timber and technique. And it's like a real thing. And now I realize I do it all the time. So totally, totally understand what you're yes. going through. Well, that's the best listener letter ever. Thank you. <laughs> Good grief. Everyone likes a bit of validation. Just a little bit. All right. Here's one more listener voice memo. Hello, Kai and Kimberly. My name is Petra. I'm originally from Ukraine, but right now I'm in Portugal. Because of war, the Russia is waging on Ukraine continues. You've been talking Mm. about coupons in the last couple of episodes. 
Yes. And I've been thinking mm-hmm. like, yeah, people not not really using it, but I've realized something. Cashbacks. Cashback is something that kind of replaced coupons. So you're not mm. clipping things to go with them, but you're actually looking where you can get bigger or better cashback or on what products. So that's what we use. So kind of similar. Yeah, kind of similar. I'll buy that. It is. Like I know that some credit cards give an offer of like you shop at certain stores and get cash mm-hmm, back. Mm-hmm. And I have definitely done that type of shopping at CVS where they're like, you know, if you buy X number of dollars of this product, then you can get, you know, some money back to spend at CV- mm-hmm, extra care mm-hmm, bucks or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah, it is. Also, interesting. J- just for the record, we've got a guy who's Ukrainian but living in Portugal, but who takes the time to listen to this podcast. And I'm sorry. That's just incredible. Just thought I'd say that. Yeah. Thanks, Petro. Yeah. No joke. All right. Uh, here we go. As we always do, uh, we leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Stephanie in Massachusetts, you're up. One thing I thought I knew but later found out I was wrong about is that everyone has the same definition for flapjacks. On our flight home <laughs> from our honeymoon in Ireland, we were excited to see flapjacks listed as one of the inflate meals. You can imagine our disappointment when we received a big granola bar rather than a short stack of delicious pancakes. (laughs) It turns out that in some countries like Ireland and the UK, flapjack is an oat bar, but Canadians and Americans say that flapjacks are pancakes. Thanks for making me smart. Yeah, Yeah. of course they're pancakes. What? Um, Okay. I mean, it's kind of like biscuits. You know, to us they're biscuits. To them it's cookies. That's true. That's true. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Oh, my goodness. All right. Anyway, uh, no matter what you learn on this podcast or elsewhere in life, uh, send us your answers to the Make Me Smart question. Would you via a voice memo to our email at makemesmartatmarketplace.org? Or you can leave us a message, 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART is another way to dial that. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Our intern is Olivia Chow. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Dorado on the other side of the soundproof glass. Mishin Siguan is going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez, who used to work here, they composed our theme mm. music. The senior producer is Bridget Bonner. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.